Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There were two Benjamins from Philadelphia at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Franklin, of course, but also Dr. Benjamin Rush. In a packed career, he'd crossed the Delaware with George Washington as a battlefield surgeon and went on to be treasurer of the U.S. Mint. But his greatest contribution was perhaps to the field of psychiatry. In 1812, he published Medical Inquiries and Observations Upon the Diseases of the Mind, the first American textbook on the topic. This founding father is also known as the father of American psychiatry. I'm John Prideau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's the best way to treat severe mental illness? California is overhauling its mental health system. A slate of reforms signed into law there last week exemplify two broad shifts in mental health care in America. The building of more beds for patients suffering from mental illness and an expansion of involuntary treatment. What can California tell us about the best way to treat mental illness? Is more involuntary treatment part of the solution? With me this week to discuss some big changes underway in how states attempt to help their citizens who have mental health illnesses are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloun in Washington, D.C. Guys, I'm a little bit croaky this week, as I'm sure you can hear, so you're going to have to do most of the talking, but that's probably for the best. We'll get a better podcast this way. Anyway, how are you both doing? I'm doing fine. It continues to be difficult to watch the situation in Israel and in Gaza, and our coverage on this continues to be excellent. So if you want to understand what's going on, I'd direct you to all of the coverage in the paper, online, in our podcasts, our colleagues are really doing great work explaining both what's going on now and the implications of it. Yeah, I'll second that. I think our colleagues have been doing excellent, excellent reporting. And as for me, things in D.C. are humming along. And are we going to get a speaker, Idris? That's a good, good question. I don't think imminently. I think, you know, Jordan is the flavor of the week and it might not last for that much longer, so I think we might get a few others in the coming weeks, maybe, before we have a decided resolution. So it's not a good time for the House to be in as much chaos as it is. You should probably stay away from Congress for a while, or they might draft you and do the job. Well, we're not going to be talking about the Speaker this week. We're going to be discussing a subject which I think is both extraordinarily important, very difficult from a public policy perspective, and also generally under-discussed. So I'm really happy that we're devoting a full episode to this subject. We're going to start by hearing from Erin Braun, 
the Economist's West Coast correspondent, whose reporting is the basis for the episode. She told me what she's been looking into there. I've been doing some reporting on the ways in which American states are rethinking mental health treatment. And this is after sort of decades of disinvestment. And some states are implementing some really kind of radical reforms. And the reason why we're talking about this this week is because California is sort of in the middle of completely overhauling its mental health system. And last week, the governor, Gavin Newsom, signed three bills into law. One of them, SB 43, expands the use of involuntary treatment, which we'll talk about, I think, a little bit later on the show. One of them reforms the Mental Health Services Act, which is a 20-year-old law that levies a tax on millionaires, and the state is expanding it now to include things like substance use disorder. And the third bill will put a $6.4 billion bond measure on the March ballot for voters to accept or reject. And that money will go towards building something like 10,000 beds for psychiatric care and substance use disorder and all kinds of mental health treatment. And while I was reporting this story, I met with Aislinn Bird. She's a psychiatrist in Oakland who treats patients in homeless encampments. And she drove me around Oakland past a bunch of encampments that she has spent a lot of time in. And she sort of gave me an idea of some of the problems that her patients are dealing with. You know, number one is trauma and is is PTSD. And again, a lot of folks don't know about this condition or know that there is a name for the symptoms they're experiencing after chronic and acute traumatic events. Folks also frequently experience hearing voices, but it's not just from a primary psychotic disorder, like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. A lot of times people hear voices due to severe depression, major depressive disorder, and PTSD. I work with a lot of folks who hear the voice of their abuser or someone who has assaulted them, who they will hear their voice, you know, at night or see shadows of that person. But again, when you live out here, every day you're exposed to trauma. Even if it's not directed to you, you witness trauma, which also can lead to PTSD. So Erin, your reporting focuses on California for good reasons. It's still the most populous state in the union. And as you say, there have been some big changes there to treatment of mental illness. What is the national picture, though? So this focus that we're seeing from states on mental health treatment is for good reason. If you look at data from the OECD, which is a club of mostly rich countries, it shows that per capita, most of that club has more psychiatric beds than America does. America's in something like the bottom third. France, for example, has about twice as many beds per person as the U.S. does. And America is, of course, a much richer, much bigger country. And that shortage of beds has manifested in different states in different Ways So in some states, it's a really long wait time for treatment, and that can really affect patients. Dr. Bird told me about one of her patients who had to wait two weeks to get into a facility, and in the meantime, that person is in distress. 
In other states, it's high rates of mental illness among unsheltered homeless people, like in California or along the West Coast. And that problem is really visible. In Texas, there are prisoners kind of languishing in county jails, waiting for places to open up in treatment centers. And all of these things stems from this persistent shortage of mental health treatment facilities. So there are some changes afoot in very liberal California and some changes afoot in very Republican Texas. So some degree of convergence. Why do you think politicians are choosing or attempting to address this now? Yeah, I thought that was so interesting that this focus on beds was a bipartisan issue. You know, it's not often that Texas and California agree on policy But as I was talking to folks for this story, three things really emerged and made it possible for this investment in treatment facilities to happen now. And the first is, I think, the lessening of stigma around mental health that we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. So many people were struggling with fear and anxiety and isolation during the worst of the pandemic, I think there was kind of a broad acknowledgement that mental health issues are widespread, that everybody's kind of dealing with something. The second is the opioid epidemic, which has now wrought havoc on America for more than 20 years. And we also have kind of seen similarly a bipartisan desire to address that crisis because it has just touched every community in the country. And then finally, there's the issue of high rates of mental illness among unsheltered homeless people. And that's more of a problem for these coastal democratic states like California, Washington, Oregon. And it has just made, I think, mental illness a much more visible part of communities and people want to do something about it. For this story, I interviewed Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, and we sat down in this kind of echoey room across a big table from each other in a hospital in Los Angeles. And he told me a bit why he thought that the pandemic really made these reforms possible. Uh, Just it it radicalized our focus with intention on moving aggressively, deliberatively, and being willing because COVID, if nothing else, broke the paradigm, it broke down everything, broke down all barriers, broke down uh, all the walls of sort of our previous thinking on every topic, and it allowed us to sort of shatter the construct of, of how the system was designed and said, no, we have to reimagine the system bottom up. Charlotte and Idris, before we go any further, I wanted to define terms a little bit. We're talking in this week's episode about severe mental illness, which is not to diminish the importance or awfulness of the more common sorts of mental illness. I think about 20% of the population suffers from depression or anxiety at any one time. And there's lots of important conversations and reporting going on about the effects of social media on teens' mental health and that sort of subject. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about people suffering from conditions that are thankfully quite rare, conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, multiple personality disorders, clinical depression. And what's really interesting about what's happening here is there's a bit of a move, as Erin describes, back towards a more old-fashioned, in a way, approach to those illnesses, 
which involves in some cases involuntary treatment of those who are suffering from them. As Aaron pointed out, part of the reason why politicians are focused on this is because of the increase in homelessness. And I was looking at this both nationally, but also in New York, where I live, where it's been a particularly acute problem. So nationally, you have a housing problem for homelessness, where rents are rising much faster than wages. But in some cities, such as New York, you've seen this really alarming increase in the number of people who are on the streets. So in New York, where people have a right to shelter, the number of people in shelters, which is the easiest way to try to quantify the homeless here, the number of homeless people was up 40% in August 2023 compared with the level of August 2019 before the pandemic. And it was more than double the level of 20 years earlier. And it is absolutely not the case that all homeless people have a serious mental health problem. But the way that these two trends intersect has been a focus increasingly for politicians because there's an interest both in making sure that people who are mentally ill don't hurt themselves and also that they don't hurt other people or that they aren't hurt by police. For instance, in New York, there have been instances of how all this can go wrong with police killing people who are mentally ill. And you had, even this week, another instance of a mentally ill person in Midtown Manhattan pushing someone in front of a moving train. And so, on a few different dimensions, this has become an urgent priority for all kinds of governments throughout the country, as you heard Aaron describe, and particularly in some cities where the problem has become increasingly urgent. What we're talking about in this episode is a group within a group within a group, right? So there are, among the homeless people in America, uh, about two-thirds are sheltered, one-third are unsheltered. Most people who are homeless are transiently homeless, and only a few of them are chronically homeless. But it's among those chronically homeless people who are more likely to be unsheltered, more likely to have a mental health issue, a severe one that involves psychosis, and more likely to have a substance use disorder. So those are the sets of people that probably folks think of most when they think of a homeless person. And they're also the folks that are the toughest for the state to handle. So what is so interesting is that states like New York, states like California, Washington, Oregon are exploring whether or not it is possible to involuntarily commit people. And, you know, America, I think we're going to get into this, but America got rid of the system because there was some pretty severe inhumane treatment that was going on in the asylums that were set up. But after deinstitutionalization, which is this kind of bloodless term that people use for the process of the closing of state psychiatric hospitals, there wasn't really something to replace it. And now states are reconsidering what to do. And I think given the fact that a lot of the other policy proposals that have been attempted, a lot of spending in states like California and New York haven't seemed to make much of a dent in the homeless population, I think that these approaches make some sense. Well, there's a very real tension here between protecting the safety of someone with severe mental illness and the safety of those around them and respecting that person's rights and autonomy. So it is extremely thorny issue. And as you say, Idris, it's a subset within a subset. So there's a big problem, which is homeless populations in American cities. Then there's the most difficult part of that question, which is how you help people who are truly unable to help themselves. And is there a way to do that that's politically feasible, that respects that individual's rights, 
that ensures the safety of them and of the broader community. And that's something that the government has been unable, really, to ever get right. And the question is whether experiments that are happening now will be better than those that came before. There's some awful history in this area. I mean, first, as Idris said, the state-run asylums were really appalling places, and it was right to close them down. But what came next was far from ideal either. We'll go back and have a look at that mid-century history in a moment. But first, it's not long until Economist Podcasts Plus launches. That'll start on October the 24th, just a few days away. That means that to carry on listening to Checks and Balance, you'll need to be a subscriber. And Charlotte, as I have no voice, would you kindly explain what the next steps are? Yes. So if you already subscribe to The Economist in print or digital, or if you've already subscribed to Economist Podcast Plus, thank you. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you'll need to link your Economist subscription to that podcast app to unlock all our shows. And to help you do that, we are going to publish an extra mini episode alongside our regular episode next week. It's a short welcome to the world of Economist Podcast Plus, and that preview episode will be the first of our podcasts that will be available only to subscribers behind a paywall. You click on the episode, you'll be directed to enter your Economist account details to log in and hear it. And once you've done that, you are all set. You only need to do it once forever, and all our shows will be available to you for good. If you don't use Apple or Spotify, you can go to the FAQ page in the show notes for details about how to access Economist Podcast Plus on your preferred podcast app. And if you're worried that you'll forget any of this, don't worry about it because we will send you an email that will explain everything about this. You'll still be able to listen to next week's Checks and Balance without linking your account, but you will have to link up your account in the future if you want to carry on listening after that. Thousands of you have already signed up for Economist Podcast Plus, which makes me extremely happy. And we're delighted that you're going to keep listening to us. And we look forward to making lots of additional shows for you as we head into this really busy election year in 2024. I can't believe I'm saying that already. If you haven't signed up yet, there is still time to do the special offer, which has been extended to the end of October. It's just two pounds or two euros or two dollars a month. That's half price off the usual price if you take out an annual subscription. And to find it, you click on the link in the show notes or you just search for Economist Podcasts. The psychiatric hospital could truly be the stuff of a horror movie rife with abuse, overcrowding, and neglect. Patients were more like inmates, enduring beatings at the hands of wardens, starvation, straitjackets, and tick-filled bedding. At its peak in 1955, over half a million people were housed in state mental hospitals. America was failing its most vulnerable. Mr. Speaker, members of the 88th Congress, In his State of the Union address in January 1963, John F. Kennedy sought to change this. Finally, and of deep concern, I believe that the abandonment of the mentally ill and the mentally retarded to the grim mercy of custodial institutions too often inflicts on them and their families a needless cruelty, which this nation should not endure. In a message to Congress soon after, 
Kennedy outlined a plan for the federal government to play a larger role in mental health care. As part of this, cruel state institutions would be replaced by smaller, kinder, local centres, which would allow many to remain in their community. As Kennedy wrote, reliance on the cold mercy of custodial isolation will be supplanted by the open warmth of community concern and capability. Emphasis on prevention, treatment and rehabilitation will be substituted for a desultory interest in confining patients in an institution to wither away. I'm delighted to approve this bill. Later that year, the Community Mental Health Act became law. Under this legislation, custodial mental institutions will be replaced by therapeutic centers. It should be possible within a decade or two to reduce the number of patients in mental institutions by 50% or more. The new law provides the tools with which we can accomplish this objective. It was the last bill President Kennedy signed before he made that fateful trip to Dallas three weeks later. A dark page in the annals of America has been written to the crack of an assassin's bullet. A nation mourns, the world grieves. The man who became 35th president less than three years ago is dead. Part of Kennedy's vision did come true. Asylums closed, and the number of patients in them fell by 90% between the 1950s and early 2000s. But the network of community health centers meant to replace the state institutions never took shape. The Community Mental Health Act only provided initial funding for building and staffing the centers. The hope had been that states would then use the money saved by the closures to continue the funding. But this largely didn't happen. Less than half of the 1,500 planned centers were built, and many of them didn't sufficiently provide for their patients' needs. There was some hope for community health centers when, in 1980, Jimmy Carter signed a bill to properly fund them. But Ronald Reagan repealed it in his budget when he took office the next year. There were good intentions behind the Community Mental Health Act, but that wasn't enough. It was right to close state institutions. It was wrong to do so without a foolproof plan to replace them. So Idris, something resembling modern psychiatry really gets going in the 19th century, towards the end of the 19th century. And in that era, states and governments elsewhere build these big asylums, which are meant to be places to treat people with severe mental illness. But in fact, over time, they become essentially warehouses for very sick people. People are parked in there. They're not treated much. They never get out. And then, in the middle of the 20th century, John F. Kennedy is a big part of this. You have this big deinstitutionalization movement to close down those 19th century asylums. Yeah, that's right. And as we just heard, the successor program, the community health centers, never really took off in the way that had been intended. When Kennedy signed that bill into law, it preceded the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, which happened under Lyndon Johnson. And so the two systems were not fully integrated, let alone the fact that Medicare didn't pay for people who were incapacitated, but not elderly. I think there's been a recognition that simply closing those asylums as awful as they were did not solve the issue. You know, in the 50s also, there was a bout of optimism 
People thought that new antipsychotic drugs like Thorazine would make it possible for people who had been severely mentally ill to live in the communities, and that, I think we now know, is not sufficient. You need lots of other things to happen and lots of support for people to make a recovery, and some people won't be able to, even with a lot of support. What we've seen now is, a, just to give a number, is a pretty astonishing downward trend. So in 1955, there were almost 560,000 people in psychiatric hospitals, and in 2016, there were just 38,000. So what happened to severely mentally ill Americans? Where did they go? There's an argument that quite a lot of them are in prisons. There's an incredibly high rate of mental illness among prisoners in this country, and they have become, some would argue, the repository for these kinds of problems. And obviously, a share of people who aren't able to integrate properly into society are the folks who are chronically homeless on the streets with these mental health issues and substance use disorders and are now the kinds of people that the state is trying to come up with solutions for. And I think it's important to separate the problem of mental illness and homelessness from the broader problem of homelessness. The broader problem is one that's tied often to housing markets and the cost of housing, and that probably determines the overall number. But for the minority group within them that have quite a few issues, that requires a different set of treatments. And so states and cities are thinking about expanding their options to not just the voluntary permanent supportive housing and that sort of approach that was popular a decade ago, but also these new ideas of involuntary commitment. Yeah, I think that's right. Reagan very obviously both affirmed patients' rights and denied them care, which is a strange combination. And I think the shift to try to, at least in theory, ensure community-based mental health services was a good one. And that was affirmed by the Supreme Court in a decision, Olmstead versus LC, in which the court said it was discriminatory to deny community services to mentally disabled people when those services were most appropriate. But the issue is that those services, as Dries laid out, have never kept pace. And it's not just a phenomenon of trying to close these institutions that was something that happened in the mid-century. Andrew Cuomo, who was the governor of New York until 2021, pushed a transformation plan for New York in which he also was trying to reduce the number of beds in state psychiatric centers. But the issue is, as Adri said, where do these people go? What support is there? And so, yes, it's prisons. I was looking up some numbers on this, and the estimate is somewhere between 15 and 25 percent of America's jail and prison population has a serious mental illness. That's an astonishing range, even at the lower end. There are mentally ill people who end up in emergency departments. And by the way, those beds are decreasing too because inpatient psychiatric care is among the least profitable areas for a hospital system. You have some private nonprofits who offer psychiatric services. So people may be familiar with McLean Hospital in Massachusetts as one example. But generally, the trend is continuously downward, as Idris pointed out. And we keep on mentioning this issue of whether involuntary commitment may be on the rise. And you do really see this pivot among progressive states, which is fascinating, in thinking about how to have forced institutionalization. Is that an actual solution? Is it possible to do that in a way that protects an individual's autonomy and civil liberties. So it's clear that what came before is a failure. And the question is whether there should be 
both the promised increase in community mental health services that never fully materialized and whether you need to couple that with something more extreme. This is such a hard area because what public policy is trying to do here is get the balance just right between the rights of the individuals and the need to treat people who are very sick and not in their right mind and therefore in many cases unable to consent to treatment in a way that would be the normal practice in medicine. And it's a very, very hard area to get right, but it's also extremely important. We'll be back in a moment to hear more from Governor Gavin Newsom about California's mental health reforms. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In 1967, then California Governor Ronald Reagan signed the Lantman Petris Short Act. Like President Kennedy's Community Mental Health Act, it closed state psychiatric hospitals. But Reagan then cut funding for mental health care. We're going to hear from our colleague Erin Braun again, who's been reporting on what many politicians in California see as a fulfillment of the promises made over half a century ago. Here in L.A. and throughout our city and state, we all know that we are facing a crisis. We all know that we cannot address the unhoused population if we don't address mental health and substance abuse at the same time. Last week in Los Angeles, California's political elite, including LA's mayor, Karen Bass, gathered in a historic hospital. They were there to mark the signing of several bills that aim to improve mental health treatment in the state. I was there too, watching from the back with the rest of the journalists. After many, many speeches from a podium that read treatment not tense and a lot of congratulations, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, took the mic. And I think today marks a powerful and important milestone that we are moving beyond identifying issues, uh, but to a paradigm shift to begin the process of being accountable to solve them. And I want to One of the bills signed into law last week was SB 43. It loosens the criteria for people to be placed in a mental health conservatorship. In practice, that means a family member, a friend, or someone else appointed by the state makes health decisions for someone suffering from mental illness, or now also substance use disorder, instead of that patient themselves. The passage of SB 43 follows the creation last year of Care Court, a program that allows health workers, outreach workers, police, or family members to enroll people experiencing psychosis in court-mandated treatment. After the press conference ended, I sat down with Governor Newsom to ask him about his reforms. We sat on opposite ends of a big table in an echoey room in the hospital, and he told me why he thinks SB 43, Care Court, and the state's massive investment in mental health beds was a long time coming. Uh, there was a vision that was asserted but never realized around community-based mental health care. Um, 22,000 locked beds. Uh, when we fulfill our commitments under this bond and these reforms, uh, we'll have over 25,000 community-based beds, some locked but a small percentage, vast majority stepped out. 
community board of care and other types of treatment slots, fulfilling the vision uh, of a half century ago. And Not everyone is so thrilled by these reforms. Civil liberties advocates worry about the expansion of involuntary care. They argue that forced treatment infringes on people's individual freedoms and bodily autonomy. And they suggest that policymakers are just trying to hide the problem, to put homeless people suffering from mental illness where no one can see them. Governor Newsom has very little patience for this argument. I mean, uh, they're wrong on this. They're simply wrong. They, they live in an ideological world. I appreciate that. I want to, I, I, I want to live in that world, too. It doesn't exist. We're, in a, we're living in a lived reality. It's very different. Look what's happening on the streets. People are walking, night of the living dead in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, quite literally. And people are dying as these guys are talking about the way the world should be. We're trying to actually solve for it, save people's lives. There's no compassion. I say with love and respect, no compassion in that attitude. It's, it's ideologue. Uh, that is, it, it's gotten in the way of progress. And it's horrifying to any independent observer. Walking the streets in some parts of the state, is, it's inhumane. How can a wealth, the wealthiest state and the wealthiest nation, how is it possible to live with such disparity? And, and, and in many ways, it's because of these old, stale arguments. And as a progressive Democrat, perhaps up there with some of the most progressive in our nation, I call BS enough. Do you view then what you're doing here as a potential template for what the country could do? 100%. To introduce the man who's been described as the father of the Mental Health Services Act, the godfather of the Mental Health Services Act. He told me I couldn't call him the grandfather of the Mental Health Services Daryl Steinberg also spoke at the bill signing event. My heart this morning is full. The mayor of Sacramento has been involved in mental health reforms in California for decades now. He authored a bill back in the early 2000s called the Mental Health Services Act that levied a tax on millionaires to help fund treatment. One of the bills celebrated at the press conference last week was a reform of that law, which will devote more of its dollars to patient housing. I caught up with him on the phone the day after the event in LA. We were both on the road, driving across California in opposite directions. Fine, are you still in Los Angeles? I am actually back up in Sacramento. Oh, you are? <laughs> I'm, on a, I'm on my way to San Francisco. Oh, really? I'm headed there tomorrow. Mayor Steinberg is thoughtful about the balance that government needs to strike between keeping people safe, sometimes from themselves, and protecting their civil liberties. The society, through its governments has an obligation to ensure that we do whatever it takes to help people who are in the worst circumstances imaginable. And when the individual is offered help, especially offered help repeatedly, and it's, it's help that represents an improvement in their lives and even life-saving life measures that the individual should have an obligation to accept. I mean, the way that you're describing it philosophically is almost kind of in in the terms of the social contract and thinking about what does society owe the individual and what does the individual owe to its community? To me, there ought to be a legal right to, people ought to have a legal right to get the help they need. 
that, that ought to be a given. It ought not to be, you know, scattershot. It ought not to be a voluntary act of government. We, we, people who are, who are suffering, we should have a legal obligation to help them. And everybody should have a responsibility to do what is necessary to ensure they're, they're off the streets. Nobody should be living on the streets. You just got to start there. Then you can have a real discussion about accountability uh, around our obligation as a society and the individual's responsibility. So Charlotte, I thought it was very interesting there to hear Gavin Newsom outline his philosophical approach to this problem, calling BS, as he said, on the civil rights and civil liberties groups who argue that it's inhumane to treat anyone against their will. What is actually changing in practice in California and also elsewhere? So it's interesting because there are two basic changes that are underway. One is a change in capital investment, so building more beds for people. So Gavin Newsom signed this $6.4 billion bond measure to build treatment beds and housing. That will go to voters in March. But then in addition to the capital investment, there's changes in policy. So how do you put people in those beds and what do you do if they don't want to go? And there was a law that California passed last year to create a new civic court system to direct people who are mentally ill and homeless to treatment or housing, and they can get court-ordered treatment for up to two years. And in New York, you have something interesting unfolding as well, where you have the Governor Hochul proposing both a big increase in capital spending, $890 million in capital investment to build new residential units and another $120 million in operating funding to help here as well. And in that instance, you have kind of a continuum, right, where you have housing for people who are most in need of intensive treatment phasing down to other types of housing where people might have an intermediate level of services or who need even less care but some support. What you don't want, right, is someone just locked away and people may phase in and out of different types of housing over time. So ideally you have some kind of continuum. But that's a proposal. That's not passed. And what's happening in New York City right now is that for about a year now, Eric Adams has told police that they should hospitalize people with severe mental illness if they can't look after themselves. And the way that politicians talk about this is so interesting because Adams, himself a former police officer, said, it is not acceptable for us to see someone who clearly needs help and walk past this. So they're trying to frame this in terms of compassion for the individual. But as we've heard, this has got some people up in arms about the need to protect those individuals' autonomy. And there's a question about whether police are equipped to do this, right? So Adams set up a hotline with mental health professionals for police to consult. Like, what do we do in this situation? And Politico reported in July that it had gotten zero calls in the first six months of its operation. So police were just kind of doing what they saw best without consulting mental health professionals was the implication one that police took issue with. But it's clearly quite messy. And the difference between... Hochul's proposal, which is lots of housing, lots of support, this continuum, and the reality of officials on the city level who want to get those people who have severe mental illness just off the streets, which shows both that I think politicians are thinking about this in a serious way, but in practice, 
it still ends up being deeply imperfect. Yeah, I think the particulars matter a lot when it comes to the question of depriving people of their constitutional rights. And I think it's very important for that debate to be had. I think Aaron mentioned that this question goes to one of the social contract, and I think that that's right. I think that for a few decades, in a strange way, although the left and the right tend to say that they want to be communitarian, I think their approach to this problem has been fairly libertarian, where, you know, for different political priors and reasons, the resolution has just been that if someone is in desperate need on the streets, that they basically have a right to exist in that way and that the community's obligation is not one that can extend to requiring treatment or requiring help, that there's no kind of obligation that can be imposed by the community on the person. And I think that that is being revisited now. You know, people can debate the ethics on this. John Stuart Mill would argue that there's a harm principle to think about, that once freedom can be limited only in the cases that it endangers the freedoms of other people. Obviously, that applies to issues of physical violence and intimidation. But I think that the issue of whether or not it's right to intervene on, in the case of self-harm, I think Mill's reasoning leaves that kind of closed, whereas I think a lot of people would say that actually a good community is one in which community members are not left to suffer. If you do walk through the streets of the Tenderloin, and if you see people in the amount of distress that it seems like they're in or slumped over, it's hard to imagine that this is people simply enjoying the full use of their civil liberties. And I think that it is also hardening of the soul to have to steel yourself to just walk past that. And I think that, you know, in New York and San Francisco, plenty of people have to be conditioned to do that. And also, I think it's a particularly upsetting moment when you have to explain that to your kids as well. So I imagine that that's just something that arguably we should not have. You know, getting to that state is the entirety of this conversation. You know, you can't just idealize it away and pretend that, you know, even a program of rampant and voluntary commitment would be any better because then you're just back to the problems of the 1960s. I think this is a really hard question. And I think the response of Eric Adams in New York and Gavin Newsom in California and others points to something that's really important, which is that clearly part of the problem that politicians are dealing with is they face uproar from tax-paying citizens about the quality of life in their city. And so people don't want to lead their kids past someone who is severely mentally ill and might pose a threat. But also, just making people out of sight, out of mind, without proper care is deeply unethical. And so the issue is not cleaning up the streets so everything looks pretty. The issue is providing proper treatment to people who are in need of treatment, and how best do you do that? And I'm somewhat heartened by the way that politicians are at least talking about this in not trying to pretend like the existing system is working really well and pointing to the need for some change. And I'm also heartened by the enormous stink that members of the American Civil Liberties Unions and others are making about this because you need to have a healthy debate here. Otherwise, you'll end up with something that doesn't respect these people's rights or doesn't result in adequate care. And so I think at least the discussion is in the right place. And I think we have to acknowledge that it's going to be imperfect, which is troubling, right? But the 
discussion and the direction of policy and the appetite to deal with this problem in a fulsome way, I think, points in a positive direction, even if the current situation remains troubling, both for the individuals involved and those around them. I think that's a very good place to end. If you're interested in the subject and want to read more, please do go and find Aaron's piece in this week's Economist. It's very good and covers some of the things we've been discussing today in some more detail. Okay, hard turn for you guys. It's quiz time. We heard from California Governor Gavin Newsom on this week's episode. When he was Lieutenant Governor of California, Newsom hosted a TV talk show on a local network which ran for 33 episodes between 2012 and 2013. This is a quick-fire quiz. I want you to tell me whether this person did or did not appear as a guest on Gavin Newsom's TV talk show. Elon Musk. Yes. I'll say yes, too. Is the right answer. Lance Armstrong. Yes. I'll say yes. He was a guest on the first episode in May 2012. You're two for two. Sergey Brin. Sure, yes. No. Was a yes. Oh, darn it. Kimberly Guilfoyle. Uh, were they divorced then or no? <laughs> That's the question. I'm going to... Uh, I, th- I think no. I think they were divorced. It'd be weird to have your ex-wife. For people who don't know, she is Don Jr.'s fiancé, but she was formerly Gavin Newsom's wife. Idris is right that they had divorced by the time the show aired, so Kimberly Guilfoyle's a no. Next one, Will I Am. Yes. Yes, he's everywhere. He is indeed ubiquitous, including on Gavin Newsom's talk show. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. No. I would have gone for yes, but it's a no. I think Charlotte was a no. I was a no. Let the record state I was a no. Let the record state it was a no. We're tied. You're tied. This is the tiebreaker. Okay, if you could imagine making a sort of, you know, tension-maximizing clock sound ticking down, then, then do so in your own heads. Um, finally, Britain's very own Tony Blair. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a yes. It is a yes. I think that's a tied quiz and not a nil-nil as the usual tied quizzes are. That's a high-scoring tied quiz. Congratulations, guys. Yeah, I don't know if the governor would appreciate me saying this, but um, there is a fantastic photo spread of Gavin Newsom and Kimberly Guilfoyle in which they are inexplicably laying on the carpet together and staring very sultrily into the camera and it's a very indelible image once you've seen it so (laughs) if you want to have some fun i i would suggest you google it i just found it it is ridiculous oh goodness i found it now too this is exactly what my family christmas cards look like two people (laughs) lounging weirdly on the ground in evening wear (laughs) well that's it for this week do email us if you'd like to get in touch about this episode of the podcast or about the podcast generally. We really enjoy getting your emails. The address is podcasts at economist.com. Idris, while you were away, our listener Sakina, who is originally from Japan, emailed to ask you where you went and perhaps more importantly, what you ate during your trip there. I imagine the list of what you ate is quite long. So maybe just give us the highlights. Yeah, I ate quite a lot of things. I felt bad. I felt like I ate the entire cast of Finding Nemo and The Little Mermaid, the entire bounty of the sea, which was amazing. Ate a lot of eel. I didn't realize how much I liked eel until I went there. I also tried natto for the first time, which is like half fermented beans, which is commonly eaten for breakfast. Yeah, it was very nice. Or maybe we'll do a US-Japan episode soon to take advantage of your new Japan expertise. 
Thank you, Sakina, for that. And thank you to all of our listeners who sent in their views of where you listen to Checks and Balance. We've had backyards with views of mountains. Kathleen listens to us doing the washing. And I particularly like Peter's waterside stroll in downtown Seattle. So keep those coming. Thank you, Charlotte and Idris, too. Thanks, John. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. James Stickland is our sound engineer. Don't forget that after next week, to listen to Checks and Balance, you'll need to sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus. If you have signed up already, thank you. Look out for our mini episode next week to activate your subscription. If you like Checks and Balance, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.